Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we're joined by Jonathan Tanner, the CEO of Mitchell Lake Group. John, it is great to have you on the show. The pre-show was really good. Let's keep it going. How are you, by the way, today? <laughs> yeah, I'm very well. Thank you very much. Got so much to talk about and so many things to say. It's easy to get into rabbit holes, but... Uh, it is. We almost did. Yeah, we did. We did. But uh, but it's it's a good sign. Yeah, let's do this. Let's do this first for the listeners, just so they know who you are. Let's get a little bit of your background for some context, and then we can jump into some other stuff. Yeah, sure. As you said, I run Mitchell Lake Group. It's a company we founded in Australia. I had a co-founder at that time 21 years ago this year. So uh, we've been around for a while. We grew into Melbourne, then San Francisco with clients. Then we grew into Singapore, then London. Um, We sort of, you know, we're intentionally distributed. We've had our ups and downs around different economic challenges in the world and geopolitical challenges and like everyone else. So, um, but we've always worked with ventures and startups and I guess around the innovation sector. So very much around technology and new technology. So why, I mean, 21 years ago, if you had said you were working with startups, people would have just asked you what that was. Like, why did you do that? What was the thing there? Yeah, it was interesting. Well, we were sort of pulled into it via another firm we were working for at the time in Australia, which was really the one of the, the earliest firm around internet technology talent. Now, that firm rode the boom and the bus cycle pretty hard. Um, and, and they were, a, you know, great bunch of people. But, you know, we like to say that we were sort of forged in the, in the you know, created in the boom, but forged in the bust yeah. is, is one of the sort of lines we use. But it's like, you know, we learned the good, the good and the bad of, of startups and ventures and new things and technology coming to market too quickly. And it's actually reminiscent of what I think we're seeing with blockchain uh, and crypto and Web3 at the moment. It's, it's like a cycle that's boomed really quickly and hasn't yet found its, its full utility layer. But, you know, it's still very exciting to us for the same reasons as we're excited about the internet. And at that time, you know, we didn't want to give up. About the, the firm we're in before imploded on the back of, you know, rapid expansion and then the market turning too quickly for them to handle. You know, Fade and I, my old co-founder, we were in a situation where we just thought, you know, we can go join a big firm and suck it up, but this cycle is probably not going to be good for a while. And or we can stride out on our own. So we did. There's so much to unpack here too. Like, I want to talk about this first. Created in the boom, but forged in the bust. You know, I was going over this with somebody earlier today, actually, and I want to give you my example of this. I thought about buying an apartment in New York in 1997, literally just before like a financial crisis. And I was like, oh God, 300 grand. Can I really part with it? This is a true story. That apartment's probably worth 10 million bucks now. I did not buy it. I like talking about what I didn't do. But can you talk about how important it is to build stuff through hard times? Because we're going through one. We went through one the last couple of years as well. It's so much harder, yeah. but you come out in a different way, right? But it's interesting. It's it's a bit like, you know, when times are really good and everyone's on fire, the, t- the tide's up, like yeah. high on the beach. Yeah. And uh, everyone's feeling good. And all of a sudden the tide goes out and, and no one saw it coming. And what's left on the beach of note are things of substance, right? That, yeah. are, that are heavy enough, that have enough weight to stick around. They're not washed away. And I think um, you, you've just got to have a good core. And, and I think... When you're in a business like ours, which is a services around people, especially hard because it's not like, you, you know, decisions are difficult and you've got to try and keep your team and your culture and your motivation together. And But if you've got a really good proposition and um, and you really are bound to that sort of mission as a team and, and you look after each other, and it's really, it's not about us looking after our team, it's about everyone looking after each other. And I, I've you know, heard a few people, you know, in the last sort of five years talk about we are mutually responsible for each other's success. It's not anyone's responsibility but if we really want to succeed we've got to succeed together and yeah um, as a company like ours that's really important 
Yeah, I mean, I often say no one succeeds alone. I want to get back to this idea as well about building for the long term, right? And this thing that you said earlier where you said, we tried to make this decision, should we go back and work for somebody else or should we just keep working for ourselves? I would submit to you that you're unemployable. <laughs> no, but I mean that. As smart uh, as you I are and as great I as you are. Not, I not. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah. Well, look, I think... Um, I think that changes over time too. I think for a good chunk of the middle, I would have been completely unemployable because <laughs> we couldn't imagine working for someone else. Right, fair enough. Now I think we're so patient. We can see both sides of each of our coin and, you know, there, there are circumstances in the future where I can imagine that I could work for someone else. Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> in reality, I, I'm probably more excited about, you know, working less in an operational role and working more in, you know, like many people in advisory or investment roles. And I've started sort of building, you know, like as many people have done in recent times, a bit of a portfolio around startup investments as well. So, you know, I'd also like to write a book. There are many things I'd like to do, but uh, yeah. Do you invest as well? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So but do you, you invest know, as part of the company or do you invest as part of John? We've done both. So really? we have like the company invested in Startmate program in Sydney many years ago, which actually became the founding sort of crew behind or involved in Blackbird and Blackbird VC is a very successful business uh, or venture fund in Australia. Yeah. Through that, we sort of got a little bit more interested in, and as we started to make a little bit more income personally, uh, which took some time, we started playing with the idea of, you know, we invested in Blackbird 1 and Blackbird 2 fund LPs. And then we started you know, on the side investing in people really that we, because our angle is always people. And our feeling is always that if you if you know someone's got great uh, potential and capability and they've also got some muscle memory around how to scale things and build value and build teams and create markets and build sales traction and, um, you know, have a product strategy that's, you know, in tune with customer, all those things, like there's a lot, but, um, you know, good people attract good things. So that's the main thesis is, you know, we invest in people that we know really well, typically, wow. or that we've had some interaction with before. So do you invest in your own clients and do you invest outside of Australia as well? Because you said you have offices all over the world, right? So are you seeing deal flow yeah, come yeah. in, you know what I mean? Like from different places? Yeah, well, it's obviously we, I've invested in Singapore and in Australia and uh, in Africa, actually. Uh, there's a great uh, startup called Quilly in Africa who I have a very, I, I will admit, I have a very small interest in with one of my, um, sort of venture sort of amigos from Singapore, Jason Sen. And we we basically were we're doing some discussions with Start Bootcamp Africa and we've been introduced by an old colleague who's a fantastic lady from Unity uh, Gaming. Yep. And she runs Unity Education. So she knew what we were interested in and, and thought, oh maybe maybe you guys can lean into to this sort of cohort um, and see what you think and, and kick the tires and and we were actually at that time we're thinking, you know, in those sort of markets as we've seen in, in China with full stack mobile and then in indonesia with gojek and those types of things they start solving problems in different ways because they're unencumbered by many of the things that um you know more mature markets are encumbered by whether that's infrastructure aging or debt technology debt and other things and and consumer behaviors which have been baked in like in the states using checks is is still a, an uncomfortable reality for me so yeah is that still think, true is um, that still true in the united states do people still write checks and i haven't been there in 12 years so i haven't lived there in 30 something years are people still running checks really yeah. As I understand it, 100% true. Yeah, less. I would think much less. But, but still. It, it's still a, a feature of the economy, especially for small business. I think. So we're still expecting checks to turn up during COVID, you know, like waiting for checks to turn up on the, the office doorstep in San Francisco. <laughs> Not that he was in the office, but yeah, Quilly. So we got introduced to these guys and, and Quilly are these amazing young, smart entrepreneurs out of Cape Town. Yeah. You know, technical and commercial co-founders have been in university together. 
Um, and they've effectively, they were looking at landing low-cost handsets into the African market. You know, the startup boot guys have described technologies like Lyft actually came out of Africa originally, right? So yep. that was a, a problem solved in Africa and migrated um, to the US as a model. And um, we're thinking, oh, maybe these these opportunities, if they're solving these problems in Africa, there's a lot of similar dynamics to Southeast Asia and Asia more broadly in terms of unbanked and and you know, people not having credit cards or digital identities or credit scores, maybe there's something there. And we met these guys who are amazing about landing low cost handsets into that market of like 30 bucks smartphones, right? And, right. and they then they realized that because people didn't have digital identities, they needed to sort of almost model that into their own operating system for the phone so that it actually helped them create an email because they couldn't sign up to many of the things that they wanted to access like right. social media and, and e-commerce and things. So they did that piece and then they got you know a, a run of these handsets into the market and they sold like in a couple of hours like a few hundred then they did a i think a thousand and then they've they're such smart guys they actually started looking at um you know the data and the feedback that was coming from the use and they realized it wasn't consumer use it was an agent privilege like per community was doing things on behalf of other people and then all of a sudden it just spiraled and they've, they've raised again and they're doing great. But just a, a long, long way of telling you that we also do things in Africa very occasionally, but, um, but we, we're not geographically bound. But do you see this in your own business as well? This idea that like you start with this, this thing, we want to do this one thing. We want to be in this business. But as you're in business, you think, Wait a second, because at, at the core, right, every business has their own operating system and you have to add things into it. This was the perfect metaphor, I think, for what you were just talking about, right? They wanted to bring smart, cheap handphones in, but then they realized that people couldn't sign up for stuff. So they have to build that into the operating system. And then they have all these little learnings along the way so that the original business that they were trying to do is very different than the business that they're doing today. Do you see the same thing kind of, in Mitchell Lake as well? Yeah, oh, look, it's about the pivot. Sometimes it's about an insight. And for us, we I think we grew too wide and, and too broadly in our, our service model, you know, up How to so? about 2000. We started as a reasonably high-end tech contingent firm, which is you get paid on success. And then we, we started doing more executive work and we started doing retained executive works. We had an executive uh, uh, practice. And then we also saw this opportunity to sort of provide talent services embedded in startups uh, in San Francisco, as it turns out, because we went there with a client that we'd worked with for, you know, years in Australia and they were sold to MSN or nine MSN it's called in Australia. Um, great guys. And we still work with some of them in different, different firms. This is 20 years ago, but um, Wait, who you know, is those that? guys then uh, they were called fifth finger and they were like one of the early mobile uh, SMS solutions companies that were building sort of, a platform or they had a platform where they could enable SMS competitions for marketing, for example, like on pack yep. promotions and like, you know, some very famous ones in Australia. Interestingly, when they got to the States, SMS wasn't a big thing. No, so much not at, at all. At that time. So yeah. So it was like, because there were disintermediation between telcos at that time around messaging and all sorts of weird things that were dynamics of that market. But when they got there, they were doing on pack promotion, like McDonald's would have like on pack promotion on where you'd log into an email yep. and join a, a contest, for example. You know, in Australia, it was just you'd see it and you'd, you'd just hit the, the number on the SMS and you'd lodge your application. So they were able to do tens of millions of applications within Australia. It's hardly that many people there, you know, 20, 30 million people at the time between the two. Um, but they did really well with like different sort of brand campaigns and cross-brand campaigns. They went to the States, but the, the numbers of being deployed were enormous in the States in terms of impact, but they didn't have the solution. So they did well, they sort of facilitated that. We, we went with them and they raised capital again to launch into the States. 
they, we placed everyone in that business just about, uh, they were sold to Merkel eventually, but great guys, still entrepreneurs, still doing amazing things around the market as, as leaders and investors themselves. So what does embedded services mean for a talent business? Do you know what I mean? I'm just trying to figure out like what else that would be. Because I think what a lot of people yeah. think about, what a lot of people think about headhunters, which I hate this term, right? But that's what other people are going to understand. They just think about there's a job opening available there. You have a network and connectivity over here. You can apply some technology to it and then hire that guy and gal for that role. What else, like what are these other embedded services? I can think of a ton of them, but I'm curious what they are. Yeah, it got fairly complex. So we ended up with quite a lot of people in San Francisco and we're doing things like, you know, building technology platforms for recruitment services like your ATS and your, you know, your HRMS uh, sometimes. Can you, you, for people that don't know, can you just say what those acronyms are? ATS, Applicant Tracking System. Thank you. uh, Human Resource Management System, HRMS. Um, those sorts of things, much like a CRM, but yep. just for talent, uh, more or less. And then Dude, ATS is a really complex, yeah. right? Because there are so many moving pieces, so many moving parts, so many emails going back and forth, so many messages, some stuff happening in text and in chat, like just accumulating all that stuff together and yeah. building it and making it reasonable is cool. Yeah. Well, they're much more sophisticated than they were. And, yeah. and our, you know, content strategies like data, tracking relationships reminding you not to stuff things up basically but putting hygiene around process and making sure the right stakeholders are involved in the right decisions and everyone's sharing the right information that's that's part of the process of recruitment but there's also you know san francisco between you know when we're there between 2009 10 and 2020 uh 21 um was we had that business going for you know seven or eight years we we, we stopped doing that business in san francisco about seven years ago, eight years ago, and we just focused on executive search from then. But I was probably a long-winded way of describing, we got too broad in our service set, yeah. too geographically spread, and it became a very complex business to manage um, and to make profitable. And and what we realized in San Francisco, so we're building employer brand as well, right? So it's not just having a great process internally, it's, it's building a great place for people to land and wanting to build an aspirational brand for people to come to. And when you're dealing with startups, they don't have a brand yet. Yeah. Even if they're really well-funded, they might have, you know, Sequoia or Excel or Andreessen or Greylock or someone backing them in, um, which they borrow their brand halo once that funding's made, right? But they've still got to fight against, you know, even 10 years ago, there were something like 16,000 post-Series A funded companies just in the Bay Area. There's probably like triple that now. So it's sort of, you know, it got really crazy. And then at the top of the market, you'd have companies like Facebook and Uber who are really hyper growth at the time, who are trading blows with Google and the, the packages were crazy and, and you know, they just turn around. Airbnb were also busy then and they'd turn around and say, oh, we need 2,000 engineers in the Bay Area next year, you know, and we'd go, well, we probably can't help you with that. But, <laughs> but you know, we could take a piece of that. Right. You know, we could lean into that. But all those companies ended up building really significant in-house talent um, stacks for themselves. And and a lot of our friends, a lot of, you know, a lot of our colleagues and people who've left Mitchell Lake, Lakers over time have gone into those roles unfortunately in san francisco why we couldn't make it work is because all those companies would take our people uh off our hands they just offer them things we couldn't offer right. at a scale we couldn't offer. and they they've all ended up at uber and facebook and google and you know all sorts of other interesting firms and you know fitbit gopro you name it um they're, they're alumni of ours there but they're all great people and some of those times they brought us in as well is yeah. there a way to automate and digitalize this process in a way that's different from what's been done already. I, I've been thinking about this for a long time, actually. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. Yeah. 
without naming them, there are these big gigantic platforms out there, right? Where you can hire this person, hire that person. A lot of it's noise, a lot of it's phishing, whatever. At the executive level, it's very different as well. But is there a way yeah. to build essentially like an operating system for a talent acquisition that's so powerful and that's less noisy so that then it just becomes easier for you to do this at scale? Not yet. Uh, I'd say that everything commoditizes from the bottom up. So what we do see is automation of certain processes. So processes uh, are things that should probably be automated anyway because they don't necessarily take a a lot of thought. But um, if there are rules, then you can create a process. If it's a process, you can automate it. I think what is an opportunity, and it's probably in your space, Michael, is really content is where um, you're it's not about finding people like LinkedIn's got, it's not about having the best database. LinkedIn's got nearly a billion people yeah. on it. Uh, you, the quality of data varies from person to person in terms sure. of what you can find. And the ability to find those people also depends on who's looking and what they know about the 50 different role types that someone might have or the yeah. different jurisdictions, which might be deeper for talent than other jurisdictions and all those things. For us an executive, it's not necessarily about finding people because many of them are hiding in plain sight. It's about engaging them. Why yeah. would they speak to you? What, what is the, you know, they get hit up literally dozens of times a week, um, offered all sorts of money, all sorts of deals. They haven't even got time to check their email, let alone worry about the social channels half the time. So it's sort of, if you are going to reach out, you want to make sure that it's, it's an interesting proposition. You're presenting it in the right way, in a compelling way, and that you're probably personalizing it as much as you can. But the other things you need to do are build a credible brand around your ecosystem so that if, if you reach out, people know a little bit about you or they respect, have a respect that you might have something interesting to say. It might be right. not just a job. It could be an advisory board role or it could be an investment opportunity or it might be an introduction to another client for that person or a, you know, a not-for-profit. There are many things we do to sort of try and add value and pay it forward in, in our sort of you know, sectors of interest. But yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's very holistic. You can't really use AI to do that yet. But I will, will say I did come across an AI in San Francisco a little while ago um, called RecruitBot, which was, and a shout out to those guys, I hope that they're still going, but they'd built something which you could ingest, you know, you could basically run it across your database and it would follow the behaviors and search behaviors of your best consultants. You could tune it up or down, you have it following everyone or just the people you wanted it to follow. And it would learn what they were looking for and how they were looking within your own database. And then it would, you know, when you had a new search come on or a new project, you would do some searches and then it would go, I suggest you also look at these two profiles because you seem to have missed them based on what you would usually look for. Right. So it's like, and I think that's the future of AI in in the near term is really enhancing uh, human performance and running alongside rather than replacing it. I'm going to double down on this. And I'm going to say not even in the short term. I think in the long term, artificial intelligence, because I've seen this over time in the financial services industry where I used to work. I won't say that we used artificial intelligence, but we used a lot of machine learning, a lot of intelligence. And really what it did was it made us smarter. But but the clients were still wanted to deal with us. Like, you're never going to go away because they're going to be like, I need to talk to John regardless, right? No matter how much AI you apply to it. I want to ask you this though. In a world where it takes like a lifetime to build a, a reputation, good, bad, or indifferent, and a moment to lose it, What's the strategy for smaller companies? And it's different for everyone, but like at its core, what's the strategy for smaller companies to build that brand reputation so that then they can start attracting the best talent? Yeah, well, for us, it was very much about um, paying it forward. As I said, it was like, you've got to add value to the people that you're engaging with before you have a reputation or you're a, you know, you're a brand of note or you have enough relationships or scale to be sure. meaningful to the market. Um, you know, so how we did that, we started running events you know, Fade, my old business partner, does that full time now. He has probably the biggest angel investor 
the network in Australia in Innovation Bay, which is his and, and Ian Gardner, his, his business partner in that. Uh, that's been their sort of passion hustle for about 18 years, probably wow. maybe longer. Um, but they've they've done, you know, capital raising. That was all part of it. It was like there'd be breakfast for you know, discovery of, of journeys of entrepreneurs. There'd be small format dinners where it was like, you know, Chatham House rules where, you know, you found out things from amazing people they'd never tell anyone <laughs> outside <laughs> of the room and their journeys, you know, and their challenges. And then they started doing these investment dinners, for example. But we've, we've always done, you know, and they've raised a lot, like almost like a, um, a shark tank, but they started doing this 10 years ago. And it was like, um, you know, they raised millions of dollars for dozens of startups at very early stage and had good stories and they still do that. And they do that and more, but we always found that if you could go into a conversation and not sell, like not try and sell your process and the fact that you do X or Y, but you left the conversation dropping something like a recommendation for a book or an event someone should go to or introduce them to a client when they're really hustling for their first couple of sales or, or you know, maybe a potential investor or an advisor, even if it wasn't a commercial return for us. We had to invest a lot of time doing that. And I feel in services, we've probably invested a good 15, 20 years to get to the point where we had a sustainable brand in a small ecosystem. It's not, you know, we're not a big brand that's well-known outside of our core networks and circles, but we're endeavoring to tell more of the story, obviously. And this is obviously a platform that, you know, is super for that. And I think content and content strategies now at the front of businesses so it's great that you do all these wonderful things for the ecosystem but who else knows right so you know know, it's sort of you how do you amplify that reputation is probably the next step so how do you do that i mean because that's what i do right i mean that's the basis of everything that i've thought about and the reason why i asked you earlier about you know how do you progress what was your original idea and what is the existing idea because so many of these things are relevant for me if you sat me down five years ago and said okay you're going to build this thing what is it going to be if i told you back then and what i'm doing today they're not unrelated they may rhyme with each other or kind of resemble each other but it's not the same thing at all but i do believe that this idea of storytelling is super super important i actually think that storytelling has been at the core of our whole proposition from day dot and, and it's really important now more than ever, but yeah. the reality is our job is to tell the stories of companies that don't yet have brands because they're startups or ventures or um, to a market. We then need to tell that candidate story back to the brand and we need to tell our story, both of them, and, and right. you know, demonstrate why we're relevant to help them. So, um, you know, storytelling is key, but I think now more than ever, and I, I think, you know, when we talked to a couple of weeks ago, you, you know, I said, I fully believe that marketing is a new sales. I don't think that people want to be directly pestered by things, no way. Um, you know, in terms of calls or, or emails or contacts. Uh, in a cold sense, I think what they want to do is discover things at the right time for the right reasons, right? Like, you know, and for companies, that's about, okay, understand who you serve and then be relevant, be present, be top of mind, especially during these times. And I think coming back to that sort of conversation around what you do during, during tough times, so economic crisis, yep. you know, COVID crisis, geopolitical crisis, whatever it might be that's tightening the market and putting pressure on your business. Or maybe you just have some customers that have gone bust and you're too narrow in that market. You know, fundamentally, you've got to stay relevant, stay, you know, I've almost lost my train of thought there, but yeah, you've got to to be in 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 a mode where you can recover that energy and engagement with the market. And, And it's sort of like, um, it'll come to me in a set. We might have to move on. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. Cause I, I want to jump in here because I, I completely believe in this. Mm. I, I like to say like, I'm terrible at sales. Like I really am. When I was at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, I hated getting on the phone and selling something to somebody. I wanted them to believe in the product, but if I didn't believe in it completely, it was hard for me to convince them to do it. Right. In other words, if, 
if it's hard to explain the word, like if I don't like this pasta, I'm never going to take you to that restaurant because I don't want you to eat it as well and just go, why would he serve me this thing, right? Which could go so wrong. But I believe, and you said this, like marketing is the new sales, but sell it, not selling, I think is also the new sales. And I think that if marketing is the new sales and I think conversations is the new marketing, right? And then remember your train of thought, because I'm sure because I know this has happened to me even, even 10 years ago or 15 years ago when I'm sitting at my desk at, at Morgan Stanley and I hear somebody go, God, I just stayed at the um, Amandari in Bali. That place was amazing. It's all I heard. I don't know how to spell Amon. I don't know how to spell Dari, but I know I went back to my desk and looked it up and I was like, that's where I'm going on vacation. Do you know what I mean? Oh, so yeah. I think that's yeah, how that happens. That's what I'm nuggets. trying to replicate. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, and I just wanted to close the thought that I was trying to find before it escaped my you know cold nope. adult brain <laughs> what i was saying is you got to be top of mind especially during these tough times yeah so it, i actually think that now is the time when you're going through COVID or other things um you know and these swings and roundabouts of the the cycle and your business is under pressure everyone's inclined to go to their shells and go let's bunker down we'll cut costs we'll do this we'll do that and you absolutely should be prudent and and cut any costs you can that are that are not essential to sure. running your business and it's just prudent management but at the same time what you don't want to do is disappear from the market so you want to be absolutely present absolutely positive you know holding it out there even doing things like paying it forward intentionally because you know people are under stress we did a bit of that during covid Yep. We built huge loyalty out of that, which is great for us. And I think good for the market, good for our team. But it's a real, you know, it's it's counterintuitive to lean into trouble. But it's it's kind of what you need to do. Yeah. I love it. It's counterintuitive to lean into trouble. How do you, as a team, right? Because you have to hire your own people too. You want to hire people yeah. to go out and like create connections, build, you know, build the marketplace, all this stuff. How do you convince like newer staff who haven't been through multiple cycles? Like what's the story you tell without sounding like, you know, someone's dad or granddad that there's a long-term view here and that like the meticulous building slowly but surely over time is going to win over someone who's just trying to get like quick wins. Like the long game is more important. How do you convince somebody this? What's the story you tell them? Yeah, it's, well, I tell some of the stories we've told today, like in terms of tenure, because you've got to be patient. And I think yeah. what we learn as you get older and you work, more in business uh, regardless of what you do i think is you you understand that being frantic and and jumping or being reactive is is never sustainable as a model so you've got to be resilient you've got to plan long term and you've got to play the long game because there's no such thing as a as a quick buck that's that's repeatable right so no. or, or even worthwhile most of the time so it's sort of you know you've got to want to do what you're doing we always you know our values are you know curiosity has been one of our key values and it's like if you're not curious in our business you fall off the back of the market really fast the market in technology and venturing and entrepreneurialism and invention and transformation changes so quickly that you know there's there's literally no point you'll have relevant you'll be relevant for a year or two and then you just become a process junkie right like you, yeah. you run a good process that's great but you won't create anything new or, or stick with the market and i think for us we tell those stories of companies that we've worked with for 10 or 15 years and people we've worked with for 20 years in all sorts of contexts now. Like, you know, we've had people who've been clients and candidates, they're co-investors, we've run JVs, we've done all sorts of things with them because they're great people. And I think ultimately, you know, the people you try and hire are, are people who see the world in a similar way, share your values, are excited about the potential of what they can do and we can do together. And I think they love stories and we tell them the stories and hopefully that engages them. We also like get very Simon Sinek. We talk about the why. why. We, we, 
you know, Dan Pink Drive. Like there are things that are really useful tools and books and, and things to absorb in content. But fundamentally, you've got to be curious and mindful and you've got to partner. Have you ever had an opportunity where you think, because you have so much information, right? So many connections, so many conversations, and you're thinking there's a market gap there that somebody needs to fill. This is outside of the idea of talent acquisition and just thinking that lady, that guy, and that junior person, if we put them all together, could actually solve this problem at scale in a way that's different than what they're currently doing. Have you had a, had a chance to just go, the three of you should work together to build this thing? Do you know what I mean? And then maybe invest in it, you know? All the, all the time. And, and actually, I've got a live example of that <laughs> where we're bringing autonomous security robots from Silicon Valley into Australia. And initially, we thought, uh, you know, maybe we just do sales for that, you know, like, yeah, yeah. you know, and we looked at drones and all these things. And we realized, you know, there's an opportunity for transformation in the industry. So we're building this sort of trusted partner network with manpower security businesses. Again, it's not about replacing people with these robots, but it's about enhancing the security service where you're not reliant on, you know, maybe four people, um, but maybe it's three people plus robot to get all the sense of value. And at the moment in places like Australia, because of COVID, we're about a million people short in many of these jobs. People yeah. don't want to either do the jobs because there's more money in mining or other things that are high value tasks. Right. But we did all this interesting sort of, you know, experiments and modeling and, and that spiraled out of control. We brought all these amazing people together from the industry and technology. And um, and that's now a play that we're, we're looking to roll out more aggressively in Australia. Um, and then potentially, we're also talking to some large organizations here and, and then maybe back into the States as well. But it's about how can you transform an industry by bringing together the right people, the right technology yeah. and the right proposition with a capital model. But, you know, we're early days in that, but we're excited by it. Have you met Alex Pachikov, the guy who runs Sunflower Labs, the drone business that does personal and business security? It just sounded like something you were talking about. So it's super oh, interesting stuff. Super interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I haven't. I've heard of Sunflower, but, um, yeah. you know, I haven't. How do you use your own content strategy and how is it changing over time to create a place for you to be top of mind for people? I mean, you know what I do. I'm curious how you incorporate that into what you do. Well, our, our challenge is to try and um, do a lot with very little because we're all pretty much deployed into working in, in live projects almost all the time. We became quite a skinny business. When we focused just on executive search about seven years ago, uh, and let the other practices go, we skinnied up as a business. And obviously we've stayed that way because it's been really good. Uh, less to manage, less complexity, yeah. done really awesome work, uh, but we don't get to tell those stories enough. So to be honest, we don't do nearly nearly enough at the moment, but we have um, been leaning into things like research. So it's like, what are the things that our team do all the time? They're research-based, right? Like a big chunk of our team just do research and approach and generate insights all the time. So we start with that. So during COVID, for example, we looked at, you know, uh, we created this thing called Talent Without Borders. And we looked at how talent um, internationally had to change and react and, and models for talent and companies had to react to that challenge of, of pandemic and border closure, the impact it had on ways of working and ways of living and, right. um, you know, collaborating and all those things. And for us, we just went out to our top sort of 40, you know, entrepreneur, investor, executive, like all sorts of the market, all sorts of geographies, US, Asia, Australia, Europe. And we just asked them the same set of questions, which is the sort of thing our guys do all the time. Like we're interviewing people, we're having conversations. And so I'm like, I just had to convince my team, like, we just need to trap those insights. You know? yeah. And if you ask enough people the same question and they share their perspectives, you'll come to a common truth or an insight that's really useful. It's not just an opinion. Once you have enough opinions and you start to form the core of a truth, then that's really valuable information. And out of that, we produced this sort of uh, report, which we shared out, which was, which was successful. It's almost like, you know, 
how much are you going to travel after COVID? You know, we travel the same amount. We be in the office the same amount and the consistency of the answers were that we'll travel about half as much in, for work. We will be in the office about half as much yeah. for work. We will, yeah. And I, I think some of that has borne out. I think there's a, has been a crazy comeback of travel, but I think it is less for business travel, less business travel, much more for people just getting back to see family and, and do social things and that'll settle. But it'll be interesting to see where it all lands in, in terms of the new normal. Yeah, I mean, I was on the phone with somebody yesterday who was telling me for something that we were planning on doing with them that non-essential travel for them is going to be driven by their carbon emission targets and less their sort of work from home and other things like that, right? The firm itself at scale globally yeah. has said, we want to lower our carbon emissions. We've got a budget to do that. And if it's non-essential travel, we're just not going to do it. And I think that's actually quite yeah. interesting. I think that's going to change the way, again, to get back to this stuff, we tell stories. I'm super interested in this because you have the facility to do research, right? And the content, you said this earlier, there's so much stuff out there. I'm going to be a little bit pedestrian for a second, but like anybody can vomit anything onto the internet that they want. It doesn't oh, yeah. mean that anybody has yeah. to pay attention to it, right? But if you have good research and then you can have good conversations around that research, and we've tested this actually, it gets a lot of attention because people really want to listen and learn and see and learn as well, but definitely listen and learn, yeah? And hear stories. Yeah. So if you can wrap insights and stories together, right? Useful data into a story format, people remember it and retell it. Yep. Um, and it's sort of like you could have a, a list of features and functions of this is what people are going to do, which is interesting data. But hearing it in context in a story yeah. from someone who's a serious investor or a serious CEO, like... We, we placed two CEOs during that time who didn't meet their teams for over a year. Right. Because right? they're in other countries. They hadn't met one of their employees because one was a US CEO, you know, that we placed in, in, is in Charlotte, I think. Um, and then his team, like the founders and the rest of the team were in Melbourne. And he, <laughs> he didn't get to go there for years. And, uh, but they've been really successful and, and you know, great venture. And so I, I think, you know, we've seen that. A, a, obviously, that's an extreme version of, but people, tend to sort of rise to the challenge, right? They'll solve a problem. And then what do you keep out of that experience? Right. Like during that period, hopefully we don't go through something quite like that ever again. Yeah. But, um, you know, what did we learn and take forward from it that was positive? Because it wasn't all negative. There were no. plenty of negative things and, and easy to reference. But, you know, some of them are positive and what can we keep out of it that, that is useful to go forward? Our team became closer than it had ever been before. Our team is a really strong core and they work together across borders more than they'd ever done before. Yeah, so it was... Yeah. A good outcome for us in that sense. Do you think that based on your own experience that the extreme version of, and I'll stop there, just gets normalized over time, right? Do you know what I mean? Like if everything gets dropped into this funnel at the top, that the extreme versions kind of drip down and then just become normal if they work really well, if that makes sense? Yeah, they're not seen as extreme because they become pedestrian. Yeah, I think they're just adopted, right? Like I yeah. think now, like I, we're on, you know, Zoom calls quite regularly with, with people who, probably hadn't actually used a, uh, an online VO uh, conferencing tool prior to COVID, you know, like, because they didn't have to, they were, you know, we've got clients who just use phone, you know, you dial into a phone line. Yeah. Right. And these are big global clients with hundreds of thousands of people, some of them. Um, now it's absolutely standard for them to do video as a, and then there's also the protocols around using video, right? right. Like I had some CEO client, like a CEO is a great guy, um, powerful character, he would just couldn't cope with anyone not having video on on a call. He's like, just <laughs> drop off the call. I just need to Put see your video you. on, or you drop off. You know, he was, he, and he didn't quite say it quite that politely. But right. uh, yeah, so <laughs> he was, you know, so there, are, there are people who have, you know, we've developed the protocols of, you know, muting at the right time and yeah. um, raising your hand all those things. And, and some companies are really 
baked in that those features into the way they interact, um, which we're a bit more organic because we're smaller, but you, you can see they have to manage those things, right? Different ways of interacting that weren't there before. I love this idea of protocols. Like you can't tell, I mean, maybe you can because you're experienced at this, but like I've got my finger on a mute button and every now and then I just don't want to be, be breathing into the microphone or saying something into the microphone. And it's so powerful, right? Because you don't know the difference necessarily. You do because you're experienced, but most people don't, yeah? Well, I would, I would assume you might be, but I, that's a skill that only you would like. You've got to be a professional to, to be doing yeah. many of the things. Like you've got a proper headset, for example. I, I do have a, a little mic here, like a boom mic, but it's sort of, you know, that's as far as I've gone. And, it, you know, it's, it's interesting. We've all gotten a little bit better at doing it, I hope. Um, and also realize that you can also create fatigue by doing things like too much video. People would be back meetings like for 10, 12, 14 hours a day. Um, without proper breaks and people just because you didn't have to travel and all these things oh yeah right. i can do, i can back to back that. i can back to yeah. back that i can do it late at night so i think probably the other thing that we've noticed is that people worked really hard ultimately out of the pro it was hard time uh to work but you also worked hard and we were we did a lot of work really successful and, and we worked some amazing people and companies and um everyone did really well but then this year when the market fell away from you know crypto blockchain um, the equities market in big tech. Yeah. Um, been, this year just has fatigued people in a way that uh, I haven't seen for a while. How do you create emotional connection? This is something you talked about earlier when things are done remotely like this. Do you know what I mean? Like, how do you convince somebody, you know, you're a good guy or that you're funny or that like they should emotionally connect with you? Because in person, it's so much easier, right? Like I can get up and hold the door for you or I can call the waiter over and order your next, you know, coffees, there's so, so many ways to do this, but how do you do it here? Yeah, look, I, I think the chemistry is hard to replicate without being face-to-face. -face. I think Google, it was Google or Stanford did some research into um, unconscious bias and um, they did an experiment where people are sort of, it was like a double blind experiment, but it, they were looking at an interview taking place, but they weren't allowed to hear what was going on. And basically they were observing an interview and they're from that interview, they had to draw out you know, a series of conclusions. Was it a positive interview? Was it well-received? Um, did they like each other? Did they did he get the job or she get the job? We, just a whole bunch of little questions that you think would be difficult, but, you know, plausible, what, just by watching body language and those things. Right. And so they found with about 90% accuracy, they could give the answers to all these questions. And thought, that's interesting. How do we then move the needle on this experiment to sort of get fur go further? So they started reducing the amount of time people had to make those assumptions. And I think they got it down to less than 10 seconds of interaction oh, that wow. they could make all those assumptions on most of those questions with some accuracy because there's a, there is a chemistry and a, an unconscious bias and unconscious bias is something you've got to be aware of, especially if you're, you know, as a, someone who's trying to hire, someone who's trying to interview because you, you don't miss something or, you know, many companies need to stop groupthink and have diversity and create diversity of thinking and, and, and ways of working and all sorts of things. And, they might miss something really valuable if they just let the click were uh, happen, right? Yeah. Like it's it sort of, and we all have that, but there's a lot to be said for, you know, when you get on with someone or not um, and whether the people are likable and, and you're more likely to, to find a, a good conversation happens more quickly where you do have some sort of simpatico to start with, right? Like some, yeah. some meeting of the minds on, you know, maybe it's family, maybe it's, a book maybe it's a current affair maybe it's a sport it could be anything and it's like you know if you fall naturally into that you know i think that's you know a good start i think so too what role does dni play in all this stuff just because you mentioned diversity right 
Yeah, well, it's really interesting because people have been talking about you know diversity inclusion for twenty years and yeah. working on um, you know strategies for for gender, cultural, now neurodiversity, all sorts of things. And I think they talk about you know we should do this, but they they haven't necessarily connected it to what we think is real commercial imperative, which is you don't want to become irrelevant no. to the greater world, the greater market, your organization. And if you have the same and a pretty cliche view of a board, right? Like in a, in a Western yep. economy, but you know, UK, Australia, US, an enormous percentage of boards of any scale are dominated by white men of a certain age, yep. but if not uh, just white men of a certain age, of a certain age, of a certain background, lawyers, bankers, yep. sometimes engineers and mining companies, but those and accountants, and you sort of go, well, how are they seeing what's coming around the corner that's going to be, you know, cybersecurity is a great example, right? So yeah. you don't just need cultural diversity and gender diversity. You need, you know, cognitive diversity to go, look, we, we can't all think the same way yeah. and then see what's changing around us um, with any confidence. Like, and we saw this happen for cycle after cycle, like in publishing and retail, in telco, like everyone knew what was coming. You could see Amazon coming. You could see online media coming. You could see all these changes to the market happening really quickly, radio, music, like, and everyone could see it coming, but none of the boards really reacted to it in fast enough to stop the erosion of enormous amounts of value from their traditional business right. models. And that's just an example. But I think having a, a mix of generational diversity, uh, gender diversity, cultural diversity, reflect the actual market that you're operating in, the organization that you're running is really critical. If we can see what's coming, and maybe I let you leave after this, but I feel like we could keep going on because I get so much stuff I want to know. And catch learn. up again. It's all right. No, no, no. Yeah, we can do this again. If we can see stuff coming, because I used to say this about 10 years ago in Southeast Asia, that we, if we look at the West, we can look at what's going to come here. And it doesn't just mean copycatting. It's just like, hmm, that thing, that idea could work here. It's going to be different here but it'll look the same. What about Africa? Another, a continent with 1.4 billion people, pretty much untouched so far. You've got venture capitalism starting in Egypt and then in the middle of the country as well, right? And all of this stuff happening, but some of those countries have a median age of like 19 or 20 or 21 years old, 51 countries, all of them slightly different. But if we can see yeah. the future, we know what's going to happen there. Are you committing as well? Because I know I am to building a big part of your business there? Like you see a lot of your own resources moving in that direction as well. Been doing work in Africa, North yep. Africa and um, you know, other parts of Africa a little bit, yep. but only just touching small opportunities are really coming to us. We haven't been really intentional about it. And I think with the investment community that we've been able to connect with, that may change because ironically, just before this call, someone sent an email, a shout out to Viani from Startup Bootcamp to refer one of his cohort uh, to us to talk about, nice. um, you know, to talk about some help. And even if we're not, they're probably not in a position to be frank. They're not in a position to engage us commercially, most likely yet, but they may be in a position yet, absolutely yeah, yet, but they are in a position where we can share some insights from, yep. you know, other sectors and, and talent models and venture models. And, you know, we talk about things like, you know, concentration of capital on your, your shareholder registry and other risks of family and friends money or, strategic corporate interest and and you've got to balance all these things and we don't know all the answers to those but we will tell them to ask the questions and go and seek good advice before they get down a certain path in the same way we'll, we'll talk about what their intent to hire is and who their first hire is going to be and what the balance of their team and skills is and so it, there are lots of things we can share and hopefully in the same way that they're doing things that we don't know how yet to do here because we haven't had to right and um, we can learn from that hopefully they can learn from experience and 
and what not to do in many cases. Uh, if from a more mature market, we can give that perspective. I think for us, we can definitely see, and, and don't get me wrong, there are some hyper-funded businesses down there. For sure. Amazon, Microsoft, Google, everyone is busy down there supporting that ecosystem in from an because it's in their interest, in yeah. an infrastructure sense, in a capital sense. Obviously, China is very active, building infrastructure everywhere, but everyone can see what's come long term, right? And if you take a long view, which is, you know, which is what some of those cohorts do, then there is going to be an enormous and exciting sort of reality down there sooner than everyone thinks, in my opinion. Like, I, I can see the energy. Yeah, I mean, I look at Africa and I think, how can I start telling those stories, right? I want to consistently be in a position where I'm telling those stories before anybody else is in a way that's similar to what you're talking about. I want to front run the growth that I yeah. know is going to happen. I saw what happened in Southeast Asia. Actually, to be fair, we started investing personally in China 25 years ago. We were way too yeah. early. Yeah. Too early. Yeah, sometimes you can be too early. Yep. I think we were operating for 10 years before our market particularly got really hot. Right. You know, so, so <laughs> you know, we felt like we sent out, you know, invitations to the party and no one turned up for quite <laughs> some time. And then there was a line, took, 15 years later, there's a line outside the door. But it, it's sort of like, there is that, that getting that timing right. Right. Uh, but doing what you can and leaning in and building those relationships and trying to learn about the market and what might occur um, ahead of time is, is a great investment, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Okay, look, why don't we leave it at that? This was amazing. You have to come back. We have to tell more of these stories together. And there's got to be a way we can tell stories of some of the people that you're helping try to tell stories as well. Absolutely. Anyway. I'll bring some in. Well, yeah. We should speak to the Quilly guys, for example. They're awesome. I'd love to. Yeah, that I would yeah, love to do. Uh, Okay, Jonathan Tanner, the CEO of Mitchell Lake Group. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Michael. Take care, mate.